It's Friday, October 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The New York Post this week published what it called smoking gun emails, revealing how Hunter Biden introduced a Ukrainian businessman tied to Burisma to his father, Joe Biden. The emails were obtained from a laptop left at a computer repair shop whose contents were later shared with Rudy Giuliani and then the New York Post. Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of Washington Post Fact Checker, joins us for what to know. Next, there's a lot to look out for on election night. One of the biggest concerns is that there could be chaos at the polls and we won't know who wins on election night. Some other things to look out for will be poll watchers or fear of voter intimidation, how long it will take for mail-in ballots to be counted, and litigation that could follow. Mark McKeck, national government reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for everything that could go right or wrong on election night. Finally, scientists are looking into what's becoming known as COVID brain fog. These are lingering symptoms of memory loss, difficulty focusing, dizziness, and even grasping for everyday words. Some COVID survivors say that it's impacting their ability to work and function normally. Pam Bellock, health and science writer at the New York Times, joins us for what to know about COVID brain fog. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Never before have we seen active censorship of a major press publication with serious allegations of corruption of one of the two candidates for president. Joining us now is Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of Washington Post Fact Checker. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. You're welcome. wanted to talk about this article that the New York Post published on Wednesday. They say it's a smoking gun email revealing how Hunter Biden introduced a Ukrainian businessman tied to the gas company Burisma to his father, former Vice President Joe Biden. There's a lot of stuff going around about this. These emails were found on a laptop that a computer repair shop owner in Delaware had. He supplied it to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, and Rudy Giuliani supplied that stuff to the New York Post. This story was kind of immediately met with a lot of skepticism. But Glenn, help us walk through this. What do we know about what the New York Post was reporting, and then why was this met with skepticism? Supposedly, Hunter Biden or someone that looked like Hunter Biden dropped off a laptop to be repaired, didn't pick it up. The owner of the store then looked into the hard drive and decided he saw interesting stuff in there. He gave it to the FBI, but he also kept a copy for himself, which he then gave to Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer. But we at The Washington Post have not been able to actually examine the hard drive and verify whether these emails that the New York Post talks about are in any way correct or if they've been manipulated or if they're Russian disinformation or anything like that. And the Biden campaign has said that they checked Joe Biden's schedule surrounding that time and surrounding the email and right in the time that the email said, hey, thanks for introducing me to your father and all that. They said that there was never such a meeting between Joe Biden and the person uh, tied to Burisma in the emails. They said that there was never any meeting that occurred that day. The email says, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving an opportunity to meet your father. It's unclear if it's talking about he had the meeting or he was hoping to have the meeting. I spoke to the chief foreign policy advisor for the vice president at the time who said he was in every meeting that the vice president had in Ukraine. He said there was no such meeting with this guy. And that was also affirmed by two other people I spoke to who worked for Biden or were in the Obama administration working on Ukraine issues. But that doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been a moment where 
Hunter may have been standing there with the guy at a public function and said, hey, Dad, I want you to introduce you to Victor here. And they shook hands. When I did have the Biden people check his schedule, I mean, he had a couple of public events the night before, like a Greek Independence Day reception, and then he spoke at some sort of congressional gala. So you could see possibly something like that happening, but it's the kind of thing that happens all the time in Washington. They said there was also videos, a bunch of pictures of Hunter Biden in a bunch of compromising situations. They show him doing drugs, things like that. I think the Post posted some of those pictures. I mean, it's just a weird thing. <laughs> if Hunter Biden dropped it off, he wouldn't get it back because of the sensitivity of, of all that. Just to back up for a minute, how many people drop off a laptop and then never come back to pick it up? Right, exactly. That's a little strange. And this happened supposedly in spring of 2019. And this is when, just at the moment that Giuliani and the Russians that he had been working with and the Ukrainians were spreading this stuff about Hunter Biden. So let's not put it past of this being some sort of concocted hacked material right. that was put into this laptop. And that's kind of what I wanted to focus on a little bit more, too. Uh, obviously, the Post or Rudy Giuliani have not made this available to others to authenticate. But in the article, you talk about how the New York Post just kind of published PDF printouts of this or a photo made of the email. There's no metadata attached to this, no headers on this. So it makes it that much more difficult for other people to authenticate, to believe it, let's say. Exactly. And that was one of the strange things about the article is that they did print some emails where you could see metadata, but not the so-called smoking gun email. That was just a photograph of an email. One of the other interesting things surrounding all of this, I think, is how Facebook and Twitter responded to this right away. They tried to limit the spread of this article, I guess, while they were trying to authenticate this also, but they weren't letting it float around so widely as, you know, anything else, really. Well, I think everyone has learned a bit of a lesson from four years ago and where there was lots of stuff doled out by WikiLeaks that was hacked material. And some of it, when you investigated it afterwards, the spin that was put on it was completely false. So, for instance, there was a one of the WikiLeaks emails was pitched as saying that Hillary Clinton had used Clinton Foundation funds to pay for her daughter's wedding. When I investigated it, it turned out it was completely false. So we at the Washington Post have set up some pretty strict guidelines for how you treat this material in the final weeks before an election. You have to just be much more careful about it because you don't want the news organization to be manipulated by someone trying to swing the election with something that could well turn out to be fake. Glenn Kessler, editor and chief writer of Washington Post Fact Checker. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. The thing that really uh, works is you go to the ballot box. It's going to be very safe. I think by that time, COVID will be even lower. It's going to be very low. It's going to be a very safe process. Joining us now is Mark Niquette, national government reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Sure. Glad to be with you. wanted to talk about what to expect, what to look forward to for election night. There's millions of people that have already voted through mail-in balloting, absentee balloting, but there's still a lot of people that are going to turn out on election day to vote in person. And then after that, what do you do? We wait until we get those results. But there's a lot that can go very right. There's a lot that can go very wrong on election night. And Mark, you wrote an article kind of reflecting 
what to look out for. Uh, I always love these stories because I want to know what to watch out for while we're going through all this. Uh, and one of the issues that you bring up is poll watchers. So tell us a little bit about what the role of a poll watcher is and how they operate. Right. Well, a poll watcher is somebody who's approved to represent either political parties or candidates inside of polling locations to uh, essentially observe the balloting, also when ballots are counted. And typically these folks are there to sort of observe if there are any problem and take note of any issues that could be used to file a lawsuit, for example, if they want to challenge what's happening inside the polls. And generally just to sort of get a handle on what's happening and report back to the candidates or the parties. Uh, and the concern this year is that these poll watchers could become active challengers. They could actively challenge the right of somebody to vote or challenge ballots that are cast. And the concern is this could be sort of a, a strategy to disrupt the polling process or just create chaos at the polls. And it sort of stems from comments that President Trump has made about encouraging his supporters to become volunteers, to be poll watchers and go to the polls, even if they're not sort of approved to be inside the polling locations to observe. And the Republican Party says, look, we're not going to intimidate any voters. We're just there as part of the normal process to watch what happens and validate the results. It's sort of an important check on the process and allows folks to feel comfortable that the outcome was fair and the process was correct. But there are going to be a lot of them out there. According to the RNC, they're looking for about 50,000 volunteers to do this, and Democrats are mo mobilizing their own volunteers but they do say that they're given rigorous training on what to look out for and, and how to at least report some of that stuff. Voting rights advocates point out that the laws are pretty clear that these challengers can't interfere with voting or intimidate voters. And if that happens, they can be removed. And, you know, there's going to be plenty, like you said, folks from both sides sort of observing the process and monitoring to make sure that there isn't any trouble at the polls. But I think the concern is that it could be a volatile situation if we have, you know, a bunch of folks from both sides showing up at these polls, particularly if they're not approved poll watchers that could create trouble with, you know, interactions with voters or confrontations with voters waiting to vote. Another thing that a lot of people are worried about is having this kind of drawn out election night, not really knowing right after all the polls close, you know, maybe we get this really early the next morning or something. But a lot of people are voting by mail because of the pandemic. I think some estimates say 40 to 50 percent of people are voting by mail this time around. So what are we looking out for on this front? Well, it's all going to be a factor of how close the race is, both nationally and in the key battleground states that are going to decide which candidate gets to 270 electoral votes. And the issue we have this year, like you said, is we have sort of an unprecedented amount of mail-in voting combined with key battleground states that are going to take a long time to count these ballots. For example, one of the states that could be sort of the tipping point state in this election is Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is a, a state that's new to mail-in voting. They just approved no-fault absentee voting last year. And with the pandemic, they're just seeing as many as 3 million votes cast by mail this year. And the problem is Pennsylvania also has a law that says you can't start processing and counting these mail-in ballots until 7 a.m. on Election Day. So if the law isn't changed between now and the election, it's almost guaranteed that Pennsylvania is going to have perhaps hundreds of thousands of ballots. They're not going to be able to count on Election Day, and they'll be outstanding to be counted after the election. So if you have a really close race, you won't be able to call Pennsylvania, and then we'll have this pool of outstanding ballots after the election that both campaigns can fight over to try and change whatever the election night margin of the in-person 
votes and the ballots that are counted on election night. So it's all sort of set up where we have, again, if the race is close, the possibility that we'll have a bunch of uncounted ballots across one or more states that are necessary to decide which candidate got the 270 electoral votes and the presidency. Yeah, and that could cause a few problems, too. Uh, A lot of Republicans are saying that their numbers are going to be turning out on election night. They're saying that early mail-in balloting favors Democrats. So it could look like President Trump is winning early on. And then, you know, you've got to wait till the mail-in ballots come. You know, if the Democrats get a bump there, it could look a little weird. So that's kind of one of these issues you keep hearing about going back and forth that you're just not going to know who wins on that night. Yeah, it could be a problem, like you said, where it's pretty clear from the statistics we're seeing on early voting ballots being requested that overwhelmingly Democrats are favoring vote by mail, or at least are taking more of the vote by mail. And we think this is because President Trump has been pretty clear that he doesn't like mail-in voting. He's accusing it of being rife with fraud. And I think it's having an effect on encouraging more Republicans to vote in person on election day. So we could have the situation, like you said, where there's a couple of names for it. The red mirage, where the predominance of Republican in-person voting makes it look like President Trump has a lead over Joe Biden on election night. But then we have all these outstanding ballots that a lot of them will be cast by Democrats that could shift even the the outcome, the margin on election night. And, and maybe Biden takes the lead when these votes are counted. It's sometimes called a, a big blue shift where after the election, when the outstanding ballots are counted, the margins flip. So we could have the situation where we have an election night where it looks like President Trump's the winner. And some of the concerns from Democrats is that, you know, the president will just declare the race over, right? That I won, essentially, you know, the votes are in, at least on election night. And, you know, there's fraud or problems with these mail-in ballots that haven't been counted and we shouldn't count them or try and challenge them somehow. So again, if the race is really close, it at least sets up the potential that we could have a big fight or these uncounted ballots after the election to decide who won. Mark Niquette. National Government Reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Many of the folks who are experiencing this right now are people who weren't necessarily all that physically sick, and they feel like, hey, you know, I'm ready. I should be able to get back to work, and they find that they can't. Joining us now is Pam Bellock, health and science writer at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Pam. Happy to be with you. You know, as we go through this coronavirus pandemic, we hear a lot about the symptoms and the after effects after somebody is healed from COVID-19. One of the things that's becoming more evident, we're seeing in a lot of people, is called COVID brain fog. So these are cognitive symptoms that people are experiencing memory loss, confusion, difficulty focusing, dizziness and even grasping for everyday words. I think there was a survey or a soon-to-be-published survey where this was the fourth most common symptom that people were reporting after recovering from COVID-19. So, Pam, tell us a little bit about COVID brain fog and then the people that you spoke to, you know, how are they going through all this? Yeah, well, I think that this is going to be a phenomenon that we are going to see a lot more of as people recover from the physical symptoms of COVID. And as many people as I found who were expressing this as a problem for them, I think they're sort of just the tip of the iceberg, frankly, because many of the folks who are experiencing this right now are people who weren't necessarily all that physically sick, and they feel like, hey, you know, I'm ready, I should be able to get back to work, 
and they find that they can't. These are people who are lawyers and managers and nurses who just find that they can't focus, they can't multitask, they have short-term memory loss, all sorts of aspects of confusion and disorientation that is just kind of debilitating. And for just one example, a nurse who was featured in my article, she Long-time nurse has been working for an urgent care clinic for a long time, clearly knows what she's doing, and yet she goes into an exam room for a patient and leaves the room and can't remember what the patient just told her and is forgetting to order routine lab tests or even sort of medical terminology. She told me that she sort of tries to kind of sidle up to colleagues and say, (laughs) hey, what's your favorite treatment for that? Even though she knows full well, like... She should certainly know, like the back of her hand, exactly what the treatment was. And fortunately, you know, to her great credit, she's been very honest with her clinic about this and has asked them to make sure that she isn't scheduled on a shift alone and her colleagues have been helping her out. So she's being conscientious about it, but she doesn't have any more kind of medical leave to take because she used it up to deal with the physical symptoms. And so she's at work. And that's just one example. Doctors, uh, scientists don't really know what causes this brain fog, but they suggest it might have something to do with how the overactive immune response affects the body, inflammation in blood cells, lining of the blood vessels. This is kind of a, a thing where we, that we kind of keep following about COVID-19, that it's more than just a respiratory disease. So there's virtually no evidence that the virus itself is penetrating the brain. And so there has been some, I think, misinformation out there about that. And that's really not happening, certainly on any kind of widespread scale. So it's not like your brain is being destroyed. (laughs) Listeners should rest easy about that. What this seems to be, these neurological effects seem to be basically a consequence of the way that your body is reacting to the virus. So when you get the virus, your body mounts an immune response. And as we've seen With some of the physical symptoms, the immune response itself for some people can get so activated that it can cause more physical problems for you than just the virus itself. Well, they think that there may be some kind of corollary to that happening neurologically. In some people, their immune response gets so activated to try to defeat this new unknown viral enemy and then just has possibly some trouble shutting off. Or it could be that there are kind of little fragments of viral genome kind of still hanging around in some of your cells, and so your immune system is not getting the shutoff signal. And that could be something that's affecting what's going on with these neurological symptoms. It is all sort of tied up with fatigue, which is something that you mentioned. There's could be interplay with the body recovering from, if you have, say, still have some kind of shortness of breath, that could be giving your body more stress and that could be making it harder for you cognitively as well. It's just a complicated interplay of things and it's unlikely that there's going to be kind of a pill you can take that you're going to be able to get your focus back just like that. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.